going to start. We're going to finish up chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. <clears throat> Philippians 2, beginning in 19, Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, uh, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So the last part of chapter 2 here that we're looking at, again, remember it's a letter that Paul has, uh, that's writing to this church in Philippi. As we've established before, uh, Paul has a fairly close relationship with many of the people there because of his interaction with them and how the church started and his involvement with them in the early time of the church. Also remember, as, as throughout the letter, he's talked about that, you know, he's kind of reported to them how things are going because he is aware that they, they care about what's happening to him and there, there's a concern. In fact, what, when he mentions Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus was a guy that was a member at this church here in Philadelphia, and, or in Philippi, and he was, they, the church sent him to go see in person how Paul was doing, um, to check on him, make sure everything was okay. Um, so we'll, we'll get to more of that in just a moment. So Paul basically says he's going to send to them Timothy. So Timothy's coming. Timothy's a young man. And Timothy's coming to check to see how they're doing. And, and the main thing with that is to make sure that they are uh, flourishing spiritually. That's what Paul's concern is. And so Paul, he goes ahead and just states, states this, that, um, that when he looks around, Timothy's kind of the only guy he can send because Timothy basically has a genuine concern for other people and for their growth in the Lord. He says these other guys, he doesn't mention who they are, sometimes he, he does in certain letters, but these other guys, their main concerns for themselves. And so basically Paul, he just doesn't want to, he doesn't want to deal with that. Um, so he's going to send them Timothy. So he wants, uh, so he's kind of introducing Timothy to them so that when Timothy shows up, they'll be expecting him and you know, in a sense, they'll get up on the right foot because you have this introduction uh, kind of a thing. So, you know, there's not that, you know, kind of checking the guy out, you know, what's his deal, what's he doing here, all that kind of stuff. Timothy's been faithful in basically helping him in uh, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's kind of sending Timothy ahead. Paul wants to come later, but Timothy's coming. Of course, Paul's in, in jail. He's in chains, but, you know, he's... He's concerned, or he's convinced that sometime soon he's going to be able to make it. So when they sent Epaphroditus, the main thing is, is that as Epaphroditus was there working with him in whatever capacity he was trying to help Paul, uh, remember that even though Paul was in a sense in prison, being chained to a guard, 
he would have been living in a home and people would have had access to him. They, they can come in and out, they can come see Paul, you know, all kinds of things and activities can take place. So Paul's not like in confinement in a cell. Um, you know, he's basically receiving guests and interacting with people on a regular basis. Um, the soldiers just tied to him. Yes? Uh, depending on what your charges were, it's not, it's not all that uncommon. He was a special prisoner in the sense that he had appealed to Caesar and he was also a Roman citizen. So as a result of that, he had to be treated uh, in a, uh, he had certain rights. So many countries do this, and there are countries that do this today. Um, when you're in prison, you don't have rights. They can do whatever they want to you. In some countries, even their own citizens don't have rights. Uh, with Rome, it was a little better if you were a Roman citizen. Um, there were just certain, you know, they couldn't beat you. Uh, that's why there was a couple of times where that happened to Paul, and Paul said, you know, I'm paraphrasing. We said, you know, I'm a Roman citizen. And they kind of freaked out, like, well, <laughs> wait a minute, what did we just do? You know, because they could be punished severely for doing that kind of a thing. Um, so, you know, I don't know if there was like a, I don't know if there's a percentage and how many like political prisoners and all that kind of stuff goes into, into all of that. But it wasn't an unusual thing. You know, nobody, it's not mentioned in the Bible or talked about like it's unusual. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Well, and, he, and, and one of the reasons why he was connected to a Roman soldier is because they are basically escorting him to Rome. That, they're, they're taking him there. They're not renting a special train to do this, but as movements take place, they're moving this prisoner along, and that's, that's what's happening with Paul. So obviously you can see how the Lord used it, uh, because as Paul is kind of hanging out in different places, um, you know, he's ministering to people and teaching and talking about the Bible, and, and then there's, there's several different stories, and some of them are legends, because they can't quite, there's not always the, enough evidence to verify certain things, but there seems to be um, truth to the fact that um, several of these individuals who were chained to Paul became believers. And then the retirement system in the Roman army, um, if, you were, you know, if, you were, if you were in for a good number of decades and had a decent rank, your retirement would be, you, you would be basically placed in a town and, may, and you'd be made the mayor. So a certain amount of the taxes would go to you and that'd be your retirement. And so there's stories of these individuals being the mayor of these little towns and villages, and the ones that were Christians are dedicating a home to a church and establishing a church and, you know, those kind of things. So the gospel spread in that way uh, as well throughout the Roman Empire kind of a thing. So it's pretty interesting, um, to say the least, when it comes to, uh, to that. But it's still back to this, though. If people don't bring you food, you don't eat. So people, you know, people had to be caring for those who were incarcerated. And of course, the Lord made sure that that happened with Paul, and it did. So Epaphroditus is there. He's working with him. Uh, he ends up getting some kind of illness to where he almost dies. Um, he gets close to death. God heals him. As Paul says, he has mercy on him. And so uh, he, he makes it, so he's doing fine. Uh, and he's planning on sending him back to them soon. Um, and just wants them to know that basically what the truth of the matter is is that Epaphroditus, he risked his life. Not sure what he did, but he was risking putting himself in harm's way in some way, even just going there um, to where he, uh, his, his life had to be 
I guess you would even say in a, in a miraculous way, we would say, um, uh, saved from death by the Lord. So when he finishes that, Paul then gets back into the meat of some things, and he gets back down to the instructions that he wants to give uh, to these individuals. So beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So again, they've gone through some difficulty. Uh, he expects them to go through more difficulty. And so he begins by basically telling them or giving them a, uh, it, it's, when I say an ultimatum, it's a nice ultimatum. He's not scolding them. Uh, but he is giving them a directive. And he wants them to make a choice. And the choice is rejoice in the Lord. Um, and one, at least one of the things we should take from that ourselves because we do live in a very psychologized age and we're not used to doing this or thinking in this way. But when it comes to our daily living, we choose to rejoice in the Lord. It's not based on how you feel. Right? You choose to do that. It's, it's, a, it's a mindset that we have. Um, so now it's not a denial of reality. So we're not pretending that everything is wonderful. It's just we just decide how we're going to live our day and how we're going to respond. That's what it is. We know who Christ is. We know what he's done for us. We know what he's doing for us. And this is the mindset uh, I'm to have. I know where I'm going to be. I know where I'm going to end up. And that's so it's a choice that we make. Um, and it's actually a very important one because we, we, we're not to be and we don't have to be victims of our emotional state. A lot of things can affect our emotions. And we live in a time where I believe there's a lot of misunderstanding about emotions. So obviously, we're not trying to get rid of emotions. You've heard me say this many, many times, and I think it's clear in the Bible, that we don't live by emotions. But that doesn't mean you don't experience your emotions. And we all have different emotional makeup. So some of us are, for lack of a better way to put it, maybe more emotional or more expressive than others. That's not right or wrong. It's just, that's how we are. But in that, um, emotions are not to dictate our attitude for the day or for the week. Our emotions are not to dictate how we choose to respond to a situation. Emotions can cause us to become much more energized in a situation. I'm, if I, I can choose to act in a situation and because of the situation, I'm much more energized because of to me, the sense of urgency, maybe the people involved, I care about them, I'm not searching for energy, I'm good to go, you know, for whatever the case may happen to be. But the idea is, is that um, we are choosing to live as a believer, as one who is, has, a, has a relationship with the Lord that is to be seen, it, it, others are to, are to see it in us. So we're not trying to put an act on, we're not, trying to, we're not playing the part of being religious, but there is this idea that my relationship with the Lord has a very real bearing on the way that I live from day to day, and the way that I think, and the way that I choose to live. So again, you're going to experience sorrow and sadness, there'll be days you, that you will, ha you will lack energy, there are days that you're going to feel irritable, all that's going to happen, we're human beings. But those things don't dictate the way we live, and they don't dictate the way we treat other people. Um, those things are never an excuse. Uh, now, I know we fail. I know when I feel irritable, 
There are times I'm still going to be, for example, I might be short with Cindy. That's wrong. I'm not supposed to do that. That's a sin. And I know that because she tells me no. Uh, <laughs> all right. But the bottom line is, is that that's not supposed to happen. All right. So we, we need to overcome the weakness, which again, the emotion isn't the weakness. And maybe feeling irritated isn't the weakness. The weakness is, is allowing that to determine how I am. And that's, and so our growing in strength, growing in our understanding of what God wants us to do, growing stronger spiritually is what enables us to do that. So when Paul makes this statement, again, he's the shining example of this. He's in prison. He can't go anywhere. He's doing more than just making the best of a situation. He's rejoicing. He's happy. You know, he's like, man, this is God. Look what God is doing. This is fantastic. Um, and he's all about that. Um, and so that's how we are to be as well. When he says to write the same things to you is no trouble and is safe for you, uh, he's going to give them some warnings he's given before. And it's important. Many times things have to be repeated. So he begins to speak very strongly. So he begins in verse 2. Um, well, let me read this to you first. So um, uh, this is from a, uh, a commentary from, a, from uh, a pastor when he was looking at verse 1. And he says, Paul has been concerned so far in the letter with the internal dissensions, mild though they were, that endangered the well-being of the Philippian church. Now he turns his attention to a danger that would assail it from without, namely the Judaizers. These were Jews who were nominal Christians at best, who accepted the Lord Jesus as the Savior of Israel only, and who taught that a Gentile had to come through the gate of Judaism in order to be saved. They then refused to accept the fact of the setting aside of Israel at the cross and bringing in, um, and, and the bringing in of the church at Pentecost, they wished to continue under the Mosaic law. What happened in the Galatian churches, Paul was trying to forestall in the church at Philippi. So the Judaizers, again, it's a group of people that are very legalistic, and as I read to you, uh, their belief is, is that for Gentiles to be and there's a lot of ways to put this, whether, they want, whether you want to say for them to be truly saved or really saved or something to do with that, you, you, you had to come through the gate, so to speak, of Judaism, which meant that you had to follow the Mosaic law and do all the things that a good Jewish person would do, that it was through, really through Judaism. Um, and so, that, and so they tend to be legalistic because you have to follow all these rituals and do all these different things. And that was destroying the church in Galatia. And Paul writes pretty strongly about that. So here, he also begins strongly because he says, look out for the dogs. So when he says look out for the dogs, he's not talking about, you know, the nice little furry thing that greets you when you come home from work. All right. Uh, in the Middle East, dogs, is basically you have, you have packs of wild dogs that eat anything. They're scavengers. Uh, they're unclean animals. They look nasty. Uh, you know, by roaming in packs, you know, people are in danger uh, from these things. And so that's how he views these Judaizers, is they're, they're, they're coming to do harm. Uh, and so you need to be aware of that. So Paul is using the strong language on purpose um, to emphasize the warning that he's giving them. So he calls them dogs. He also calls them evildoers. So look out for the evildoers. And then he says, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So when he says mutilate the flesh, what he's talking about is, 
if a man was not circumcised and he had become a Christian and he was Gentile, of course he'd have to be Gentile because if he was Jewish he'd be circumcised, then the Judaizers would come along and say, well, if you really want to make sure that you're following the Lord, you need to be circumcised. So Paul basically said, yeah, these guys are just mutilating the flesh. That there's no value to what they're putting on the individual. So you need to be very much aware of this. So Paul's warning to them is because all these things that these individuals are, are espousing can detract from an understanding of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is not you and I becoming Jewish Gentiles. It's not what it's about. It's about putting our faith in Christ. It's, it's about un- understanding that our sins are forgiven, that it was our sins that separated us from Christ. And now those sins have been dealt with by Christ and forgiven. And I am now to pursue holiness. And it's got nothing to do with this, oh, this idea of, of becoming Jewish and following the commands of Jesus. Um, uh, we don't really have a group like that in a sense today. You know, you have different kinds of movements within Christianity that will be legalistic. If you were to look at Jehovah Witnesses, they would be like that. They want to, or maybe Seventh Day Adventists would be a better group. Seventh Day Adventists want to follow the law of Moses, but not all of it, just some of it. You know, they want to follow the dietary laws, but they don't follow all the rituals. And of course, my personal view of that is the problem with that is they're dividing up the law of Moses, and they don't have a right to do that. Nobody has a right to do that. The law of Moses again is only one thing. It's only one thing. Remember, when we separate the law of Moses into ceremonial and moral and whatnot, that's the way we divide it up to understand it, but that's not how it was presented to Israel. It's presented to Israel as one thing. This one component is divided up with 613 commands. You have to keep all of them. You don't pick and choose any. It's all or nothing. So if you break one, then you're guilty of violating the whole law of Moses because it's not 613 laws. It's one thing. And that's what what he wants them to understand. So the Seventh-day Adventists come along, and they're not the only ones, but groups like that, (coughs) because because of someone's revelation or because it makes them feel more spiritual or whatever it happens to be. Maybe it's trying to control people. Uh, You know, there's this, they institute various things from the Bible that they read and they end up picking and choosing and making a mess of what's there and uh, so that's why studying the Word of God and thinking carefully about it uh, and looking at both looking at the Bible both up close but also backing away and looking at the bigger picture so we can understand the full orbed aspect of what God is presenting to us and when it comes to the law of Moses God's dealing with Israel God's dealing with churches, differences in those things, and we, we need to recognize what those are. And so that's what Paul is doing here with these individuals at this church at Philippi. Is he wants them, he doesn't want to see this teaching come in and ruin the church, because that's exactly what it does. If uh, any church, no matter what the size of the church, if, if someone brings in a teaching and they begin to get a following uh, and they mark themselves out by doing certain things or emphasizing certain things that the Bible doesn't emphasize, it begins to cause a separation in the church. It happens all the time. It's happened in Savannah countless times, just countless churches that have gone through splits and problems because one group got a hold of something, whatever it happens to be, 
and they made that the issue. When I was in Hawaii, there was a, a church, the denomination is called Evangelical Free. If you know who Chuck Swindoll is, that's the group he's with. But anyway, so they, um, uh, this one church in Hawaii, um, they, they, they had home uh, Bible studies. So instead of having like a Wednesday night thing, they would meet in different homes. So you have a different person teaching Bible study in each of these homes. And in one of the homes, one of the teachers got on this thing about what's called the head covering. So you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talks about a woman, uh, a Christian woman who's married to a Christian man. And when they go to church, she's supposed to have her head covered um, out of respect for her husband, that kind of thing. And so today, when people look at it, you have some people who say, well, you don't have to follow it because it was clearly uh, a cultural thing. Then you have others who say, no, it's not cultural. This is what God wants us to do. Um, and so you have people who, who have differences of opinion. And it's one of those things where you need, you need to be convinced what you believe the scripture is teaching. And, it, and you're fine with it. So if you believe different than me, it's okay. You know, you're not going to go to hell for that, or I'm not going to go to hell for that. No one's going to be accused of heresy. There's just going to be a difference. It's, it's a non-essential kind of a thing. Well, in this church, they began to make it essential. And basically it was like, well, if you're spiritual, you're going to have your head covered. And then pretty soon one group's judging the other group because, you know, they're not following the Bible. And the other group says, well, you're just being, the, and next thing you know, it, it got to the point to where a group of people left the church. And so that church was very ineffective. The whole time the squabbling is going on, it's very difficult for a church to reach out to those who are lost because you, you invite someone to church and they're coming in there's a, and there, you can tell there's all this tension. Like, what's going on? You know, and they're arguing over, over what? What's, what's the deal? Head, head what? You know, it doesn't make any sense. And so when that's going on, the gospel is, is being uh, muddied in a sense. It's going to be ineffective. The church, their witness is going to be ineffective. Uh, and then it gets to the point to where a group leaves. So now the church is weaker financially and in every other way because the resources are, are messed up and it's just a mess. And then when that's done, people have to heal and there's, you know, they need to forgive and you know, try to figure things out and move forward. And so a church, can be, church life can be disrupted for two or three years over that little thing. And that's what happened in that church. Uh, of course, the sad thing with that church is once they recovered and got going again within a couple of years, there was another one. I can't remember what it was. It didn't matter. They went through three of them in uh, 12 years. Uh, so I said, well, maybe you guys shouldn't have home Bible studies <laughs> because something's wrong somewhere. But anyway, so these things that Paul's talking about, they're not a small thing. Um, the life of the church really is, is really very important. So, um, so like well, we've mentioned this before, and you'll read about this, especially when you read in, in Ephesians. And Paul mentions some of it here in Philippians, and when we talk about the unity of the church, the unity of the church is not where we pretend that we're always getting along and we just overlook our faults. That's not what it is. There's no pretending. The idea is that we really are supposed to get along even when we disagree on things. There needs to be a mature way that as believers that we're able to deal with certain things without causing a division, without our personalities getting involved and worried about who's following us and who's on this side and that we, we need to be able to do that. Uh, that's really very important. So it's not about all of us blindly thinking the same thing. It's about any of that. It's, it's having a mature understanding of what is important, of what's most important and what is not all that important and being able to uh, serve the Lord together 
and, and where our witness concerning the gospel of Christ and how the gospel of Christ has affected us does not then take a hit when it comes to our reaching out to others, whether we have people coming to church to be a part of us or we're sharing Christ with the other people. Um, it, it, you know, that, that can continue on without us being clones of each other. Um, so that's why Paul is using such strong language because he knows the danger of what this kind of thing can do in the church. And so he wants to make sure that it's not going to happen, that they're on their guard. So that's why we make a big deal out of doctrine here. All right? People, and sometimes people say, well, you know, they go to a church and say, well, in our church, we don't, we don't make a big deal of doctrine because doctrine divides. But it does, and it's supposed to. That's, that's the point of doctrine, is, is to divide. There's those things that are true and things that aren't true. Um, and there are certain things that, again, we are not to compromise on. So making a big deal out of doctrine doesn't make all this worse. It makes it better. Because the idea is that we begin to understand what's, when you read through the Bible, we, we want to cover everything that's in the Bible. We want to think about all of it and then be able to make judgment about what is maybe pressing, what is urgent, what is most important, what is maybe interesting, but it's okay to be on the side uh, kind of a thing. So like in Sunday school, I'm going through, I just, we just finished going through what the Bible says about angels. So we have a better understanding of angels and who angels are and what angels do and da 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 and all of that. We just want to stick with the scripture. All right. So, but we also know this, that if somebody has a slightly different view than maybe I do on angels, uh, and, unless it's going to lead to a problem, it, it, it's okay. All right. Uh, but there's also some things that we want to make sure we understand clearly so that we don't uh, cause people to misunderstand the important issues of the gospel. The simple one would be this. You've heard me say this a lot. And that is this, their belief, or it's not really a belief, I guess. I don't know if anybody actually believes it, but they say it. But people at a funeral say, like when a child dies, you know, well, you know heaven got another angel. Okay, that's not true. All right, it's, just, it's dumb to think that. All right, and that stands in the way. Okay, there's a problem with that. Because if people are believing that, then they're going to end up having a problem with the gospel and the clarity of what the gospel says about life, death, what happens after death, who's in heaven, who becomes an angel, if anybody, what are angels, what are people, what is all of that? Well, I think the Bible makes it pretty clear. So we want to go through all those things and make sure we have a good, solid understanding of that so that we can prevent people from maybe saying things that can be misleading because often, can't say always, but often, people who say things or maybe believe things like, when people die or when children die, they become angels in heaven. Normally, they do not understand the gospel. They don't get it. They don't understand the clarity of the scripture that there are people who die who really do go to hell because they don't believe in Christ. And they need to understand what that is and what that criteria is to get into heaven and what the gift of, of Christ is and how that's obtained. If that is misunderstood, Obviously, it leads to a lot of problems. And so we want to make sure that we, we get into those things and recognize the importance of those things, get into the Word of God. But again, and, you know, I've said this. I'm, I don't know if Tom has ever said this, but I'm sure he believes this. And that is, I want you to believe what I believe about the Bible. But I don't want you to believe it just because I do. I want you to believe it because you become convinced it's what the Bible says. That's why... We teach. That's why Tom teaches. We want you to learn it. And we think we're right. And if you disagree, think you're wrong. 
But the goal is, is to eventually come to understand what is the truth of Scripture. And, and because we're all better off that way. And so that's why we, you know, this idea then that we've, we used to have in our country and we've lost it and all this politics is messing everything up. But the idea that people can disagree on things and have a healthy discussion and go back and forth and not agree, maybe for a while, that's not bad. You don't have to hate each other. You don't have to get mad. We continue to go back to the Word of God. It's profitable for all of us to do that. We live in a day and age where, you know, that's kind of out the window, you know, at least in society. If you have a difference of opinion, then you're going to be accused of misinformation and disinformation. Okay, we don't want that here. But we don't want to suppress that people think different things. But what we, what we want to have in common is we all go back to this. What does this say? We understand this, and then we understand where we should be lining up on whatever the issue may happen to be. Uh, and then we go forward from there. And we live in a time where it's actually really, it can be very dangerous uh, when it comes to all, you know, a lot of the, no matter, even if you're tired of hearing about it, you can hear about it more. But the whole transgender thing and all the stuff associated with that, that is a denial of what the scripture clearly teaches about human beings and God's design, period. It is, it is a rejection of the truth of Scripture, period. We have to go back. So it's, it's not about what you feel or what I feel. It's what is the truth. And that's why it needs to become our habit uh, to always go back to. So when we say there's only two genders, how do we know that? We can go back to Genesis chapter 1. We can start from there. And we, we begin to see that it's pretty, it's really clear throughout the scripture, the way how God has designed things and, and the, this, uh, the model that's presented for us, how we understand the world around us. And of course, that is the aspect of Christianity that has always bothered many non-believers is because it's got those kinds, it's absolutes. And they don't like that. And so we have to get accustomed to that, to realizing that, you know, we're going to be on the naughty list for a lot of people. So another reason why it's so important for us to get together and for us to have unity because we are supporting each other in our belief in truth as well as our search for truth and our study of truth and the way that we define truth. So that's why the church really becomes more and more important because it's, it's a safe place, meaning not it's a safe place that we don't ever allow or entertain other ideas. We do entertain them. But it's a safe place because how we define truth and what is our sole authority, which is the scripture. And so we want to get better at doing that. Um, but that also means then, as again, as Paul is stating here, that sometimes the stand that's taken has to be really very strong. And so when he uses this kind of language, he's not messing around. He's not saying, oh, they're just some misinformed, well-intentioned spiritual people. It's not what he says. What he says is... Look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers, and look out for those who just mutilate the flesh. That's pretty strong, pretty strong language when it comes to uh, what he wants them to understand. So Paul is making a contrast then, really between two groups. Those who profess to be people of God and those who are people of God. All right? and, and what's the difference? Well, the difference is, those who are looking to the flesh in whatever shape, way, or form they're doing it uh, to, to define that they are spiritual 
or that they're walking with God or no God or whatever. It's not about pretending. It's not about the outward works. We do outward works, but it's about what's happening on the inside. So he says in verse 3, for we are the circumcision, right? So he's contrasting the dogs and evildoers and those who mutilate and says, on the other hand, we were the circumcision. That's circumcision done correctly. Um, you know, the cutting off of the flesh from the heart. Uh, we worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. So he draws a very sharp line between the two groups. Um, the one group, their confidence is in the flesh and what the flesh can do. He says, we are of the group. We put no confidence in the flesh. We are glorying in Christ Jesus, meaning we glorify or speak well of what Christ has done. Not what we are doing, but what he has done. That's where, that's where the focus is to be, and that's what he wants them to know. Um, he wants them to be able to, uh, to understand the distinction. Many, many years ago, I think it was about probably 25 years ago, there was a survey done. Um, it was a survey done of seven, what they called 7,000 Protestant youths. I have no idea what that really means, except that they weren't Catholic. Um, but, they, but there were 7,000 uh, young people, basically young adults, and they were asked if they agreed with these statements. Statement number one, the way to be accepted by God is to try sincerely to live a good life. Over 60% said they agreed with that. So these are supposed to be individuals who go to church on at least a semi-regular basis, have some knowledge of the Word of God, and they read this statement, which is clearly against what the Scripture teaches, and yet that's kind of like their default position. And it's amazing how many people I've heard, I've even heard, I've even heard people who've gone to church for decades, and like, this usually happens like at a funeral. So you have all these different people, people who see each other and they haven't seen each other for a long time. And, you know, they all go to different churches if they go to church. And people are just kind of talking. And there's always a few that have their own ideas that they're espousing for whatever the reason. And you'll hear someone say, well, well, all I know, especially if, if the person's salvation is in question. So somebody might say something like, well, all I know is they were a really good person. And we all know. Like, there you go. We are in trouble when someone pronounces, we all know something. And that individual says something to the effect, you know, we all know that God is concerned with how sincere they were. That's not true. That's not, he's not concerned about how sincere they were. Did they have faith in Christ? Period. That was it. And then those who have faith in Christ seek to live a good life. Maybe very imperfect, but we seek to do that in the power of Christ. But those who don't know Christ, it doesn't matter how sincere you are. It's kind of like saying, well, I got this bottle and, and it's, it's, it's poison, but I mean, if you believe that it can, it can cure your, your ailment, have at it. You know, just as long, I mean, well, I sincerely believe that. Oh, well, here, have some. That's not how it works. They were also asked this question. God is satisfied if a person lives the best life he can. That's not true. What does it mean, even, to, to live the best life you can? Because I've always wondered about this. Maybe it's just because I tend to be... I mean, actually, I, I actually do think I'm optimistic, but sometimes I can be pessimistic. I guess we're all both. But anyway, the idea is, so when someone says I've done my best, my first question is always, to myself, because I won't say it out loud, is, really? 
Have you done your best? Because I know this for a fact, that when I tell somebody, they'll say, Bob, are you trying to lose weight? I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> May I have apple pie for breakfast, but I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> I mean, okay, so, so, so the question is, are you really doing the best you can? No, I'm not. I am not doing the best I can. When it comes to anything, am I doing the best? Now, there, there are some things I can say, I am trying really hard to do well. You know, when I study for my sermons and stuff, I mean, I work hard at that. But even then, sometimes, I don't know if I can always say I'm doing the best that I can. Because I'm sure there's things I can do better. You know, but the effort's going to be there. But when it comes to most things anyway, most things. So when it comes to life, do you really think God's in heaven? And you stand at the gate, which we know is not going to happen. But you stand at the gate and you say, well, Lord, just so you know, I mean, I, I did the best I could. I just, well, I just think that's a, well, if the Lord has a sense of humor, he's cracking up. He says, do you really, I mean, are you really going to stand there with a straight face and say that? Right? Because he can give you 25 examples of the last three days of how you didn't do the best that you could. So this, but there's this idea that people go, oh, when it comes to spirituality, well, yeah. As long as we can do the best we can, yeah, but no one's doing that. Right? Most of the time, if we think about it, just humans in general, when we hold a grudge, you know why we hold a grudge? We want to. You know what it is? We want to. I don't like so-and-so. It kind of feels good to hold a grudge against that person. And the reason why I know that, because you talk to someone about forgiving that person, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't, I don't want to forgive them. We won't say it that way, but that's kind of the deal. All right? So you have these individuals who are supposed to be Christians, and when it came to that statement, God is satisfied if a person just lives the best life they can, 70% said that they thought, oh yeah, that's true. So remember now, it's not about being right or wrong or and maybe even making fun of people who get it wrong. It's just understanding what is the truth. And so that's what's at stake here. And so that's why Paul makes a big deal about those who are, in a sense, appearing to be righteous. And those who really are. That's why, you know, we, as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday morning, remember that we, we had that phrase at, at the beginning, after, right after the Beatitudes, where Jesus says that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. That, man, that's an incredible statement. Because remember that as far as the people were concerned, and they, it, wasn't just, it, it wasn't like they had the wool pulled over their eyes. They truly believed this. The most righteous people they knew were the Pharisees. If there was anybody who lived by the law, it was the Pharisees. These guys, you know, you would, when you see them on the street, you grab your son by the neck and say, these guys, man, they know God. They love God. You can look, it comes time for prayer. This guy is standing in the street corner praying. He's here every day. He doesn't miss. That's the kind of consistency we need to have. These are the ones. These are the guys that would make sure they were never defiled in any way. So they could always go to the temple and make the sacrifices. And they always made the sacrifices they were supposed to make. They were living life by the letter of the law. I mean, there's a lot of deceit going on there, and Christ could see through all of it. But for most of the people, man, they were just oblivious to it. And so this is what Paul wants to understand. So what we have to always be aware of, and this is the danger that our kids face when we raise children in a Christian home, which is obviously a good thing, right? It's a good thing to raise your kids in a Christian home. What's the biggest danger they face? The biggest danger they face is they go through the motions, and they don't know Christ. That's, that's always a danger. 
That is not a danger for a kid who's raised by a family who does drugs all the time. There's, there's, no, there's no temptation to do that. But for the Christian, because that's what they know. So it's a good thing, but we have to be aware of the danger that's there. That's why we pray for our children. And, and we want to be able to, we want to talk open and honestly to, to our children, even and when we sin, but our sin, so that they have a, a good recognition that we're trying to live an authentic Christian life and not just go through the motions kind of a thing. And so uh, this is what Paul is very, very confused about. Many church-going people are confused on the most important questions of life, which is, how can I be right with God? Again, many think that sincerity is a big factor. So if you're sincere, God will let you into heaven, even if you're a bit fuzzy on the truth. But again, that's like saying a man who swallows deadly poison, sincerely thinking that his medicine will get better. Because all the sincerity in the world is fatal if it's not in line with the truth. That's why, again, rightly dividing the Word of God is so important and why we want to spend time doing that. And why we, we in one sense, we do it in an open forum. Right? So even though I, I, in a sense, study in private, right? Tom studies in private, we teach, but there's always, it's always we want you to open your Bibles. We want you to look at what we're looking at. We want you to think about it. We want you to evaluate along the way. So, that, so we are, in a sense letting you see what it is that we are seeing, how, what we've studied, we want to explain that, but you need to digest that, and if, so if things aren't matching up, it's important to be able to ask questions. That would be the norm, to ask questions. We want you, we want you to understand. Right? Now, we might be wrong, it's happened before. Uh, hopefully we're less wrong now than we were 20 years ago, but we want to make sure that we are, are getting it. Yes, Ron? Yeah, when... Uh... Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. Now, the fact that we are children of God, we've been forgiven, mm -hmm. doesn't that cover that? Well, it does, but it's not because our righteousness has exceeded the Pharisees, because our righteousness doesn't. It's because God has imputed his righteousness to us. So that's why. So, my, so, so I can tell you, without hesitation, that my righteousness exceeds the righteousness of all the Pharisees that have ever lived. But it's not because it's my righteousness that I've attained. It's because I, am, I have the righteousness of Jesus imputed into me, and that's the righteousness that I possess. So yeah, absolutely. So now, of course, I need to live that way, and that's why the warning. Uh, because the warning is, if I don't, then I might be like those individuals who are pretending to have a righteousness that, that I don't really possess. So he goes on, he says this in verse uh, 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. So Paul now wants to make sure that they are getting his argument. And he's using himself in his, as an example. And he's not bragging, he's dealing with facts. But here's the thing you have to know about Paul. When it came to Pharisees, and it came to what we would call righteous, highly respected individuals. Paul was at the top. Paul was the guy that was the, the zealot of zealots. Paul was the guy that when it came to anything, you pointed to him. We need a special mission done? Paul. We need, we need a special understanding of scripture? Paul. Paul's the guy. 
You, Paul was the guy you want to be associated with. Maybe hoping his righteousness would fall on you because this guy was so far ahead of everybody else. And so he says it. He uses it as an example here because he wants to understand that what he's teaching them is what he truly believes. So he says, though I, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. So he begins by basically saying, look, if anybody can have confidence in the flesh, what they've accomplished, it's me. I mean, that's what he's saying. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's willing, basically, to put on a line and say, I, basically, I dare anyone to show me they have a greater qualification for, you know, he doesn't use the term self-righteousness, but I'm, I'm challenging anyone to show me they have more self-righteousness than I got. Because I got it. I got more. And then he explains it. Number one, circumcise on the eighth day. Now, that's basic. Every Jewish family would circumcise their boys on the eighth day. That was what the law prescribed. But it has to begin with that. If, if you don't start from the beginning there, you're already behind the eight ball. So he begins with that. All right? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. So he's truly Jewish in every way. Then he's of a special tribe, tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So if you don't know anything about Paul, Paul was the one who, after the ascension of Jesus and Christianity began to grow, as more and more people became Christians, the Jewish leadership became very concerned about this movement. And they didn't like it because they believed it was taking people away from Judaism. They, you know, they'd already rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So this idea that these people are believing in Jesus as the Messiah is a problem. And they believe that, or at least they're teaching, that these individuals are blasphemers. Now, many of those religious leaders, I think, had ulterior motives. But Paul, he didn't have an ulterior motive. He really believed they were blasphemers. And he's like, blasphemers need to die. They need to be punished. They're blaspheming God. He, I mean, he, he really was motivated by a love for God. It was misplaced, and he lacked some understanding, but he had a great love for God, and he, he was going to make sure that Israel towed the line, basically. So, <clears throat> he was a persecutor of the church, and if, you, if, you, if you've read through Acts, uh, the first martyr was Stephen, and Paul basically orchestrated that. Uh, Stephen was preaching. This, he was preaching in the synagogues. Paul's the guy that's come along. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put it into this. A bunch of people kind of get carried away with what's going on. They're going to kill Stephen. Paul's there. He, did, he can stop it. All he has to say the word, he can stop it. He doesn't stop it. So it may, there's a phrase there in Acts where it says they laid their, their cloaks at his feet. So it was, it was done in a way to honor him, to honor Paul. He's the guy. He's approving of this. We're now going to be the hands and the feet of Paul. And they then killed Stephen. They stoned him to death. And so Paul is the one who literally was going from town to town, arresting people for being believers, having people tortured for being believers, and in this instance, allowing this individual to be killed for being a believer. So, that's, so, so Paul is all in on this. He says, as to righteousness under the law blameless. So basically the idea is, okay, there's 613 commands of the, of the uh, law of Moses. 
He is the guy who can basically say, I dare you to find where I have messed up once. Nobody can find it. Right, now, he's not saying he's perfect because he tells you other places he's the chief of sinners. But when it comes to outward righteousness, he's got it. Right? He's followed it. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So this is where these individuals who are listening to them, in their minds, what, what Paul is saying is kind of blows their mind because it's like a guy saying, everything that you can achieve in life to be successful, I've done it. I possess everything that you need to be the most successful, well-respected person in society. And I want you to know that when it comes to knowing Christ, it's rubbish. It's nothing. In their minds, that's the only way you can know God. And he's now saying, Now, these are believers, so even though they recognize this, they're not freaking out when he says this, but a lot of people, that's what made Paul so dangerous. What made Paul so exciting before, and they all wanted to be, they wanted Paul on their side, is what made him so dangerous. Because this guy is, he's all in. You know, he was all in against Christ, and then when he comes to understand that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's all in, as bold as he was before. To where he was taking lives before, he's willing for his life to be taken. And remember, he reached death more, you know, he came close to dying several times. He was, and he didn't care because he was so convinced and so uh, urgently pressing and committed to making sure this message got out because he knew people were, were dying and they were on their way to hell because they were not believing in Jesus, in, in his Messiahship. So this is as strong as you can get, and these individuals then are really with rapt attention. We, we don't really do that a lot today, even in churches, even though you know, we recognize certain celebrities, whether they're what we call church celebrities or celebrities within society. We understand the kind of pull and influence people can have, but most of the time, Christians, don't, we don't really worship, like adore people to that degree. So we're like, yeah, what's the big deal? You know, but there are those who do. I mean, you know, it, it happens. You know, there's, there's people like, you know, they meet some star and they go, he shook my hand, I'll never wash my hand again. I say, well, then I'm not shaking your hand in two weeks because you're going to be filthy. Uh, but there's people who do that kind of stuff. You know, they're just enamored. And then there's people who say they're not enamored, but they are when it comes to that. So, so when it comes to, to Paul then, again, you know, he, he's just, he is so moved by God and, and recognize what's at stake that he wants them to understand that, that he was in that corner of this kind of self-obtained outward righteousness um, and he had achieved it all. And now, he, because he knows the truth, he says, I just count that as all a complete loss. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he gets down to the nitty-gritty. And the nitty-gritty is, is, is to know who Jesus is. It's to be, and, it's, and it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It is this experiential knowledge. It's I know him and he knows me. Uh, that's the idea that's, uh, that's here. Um, it's reciprocal. It is where there's an intimate knowledge and understanding. Uh, it really is about having this, this relationship, this friendship, 
Um, you know, it's a, the relationship we have with God really is, is very different than most religions because religions don't talk about being friends with God. Okay, we, we talk that way. Now, we don't, we don't view God as merely a friend. It's not that. All right, because there's always going to be this respect for who he is. He's always God. He's never my buddy. Okay, he's never the man upstairs. He is God. At the same time, he is my, he's my friend. All right, he, he's committed to, to me. Not because I'm great, it's because he's great. Um, and so there's this, this back and forth kind of a thing, so to speak, in the relationship that he really does want to know who I am. He wants to know about me. It, it matters to him. Uh, kind of a situation. Um, and so that's what Paul wants them to know. He wants them to understand. That's what he has with Christ. Um, and he wants them to have the same thing. So when he talks about these things being counted as lost, it's, again, it's not just words that flow out of his mouth. It, it's leading to a point, which is all this outward stuff is, in a sense, is immaterial. It's kind of like, again, when it comes to um, two people who love each other, you know, if, if, if in that relationship, one of them is unable to do something for the other person, and they say, I'm so sorry, I, I wanted to get this for you, I want, and, and, and they feel like they have let the person down, nor the other person says, well, I would have liked that, but that, what's the important thing? The important thing is that we have each other, right? The important thing is that we know each other. The important thing is that, that we're together. Not that you could get me this, or you could get me that, or whatever. That, that would be great, but that's not what it's about. It's about us, what we have here, kind of a thing. You know, so it's like with, uh, you know, if you think about, I mean, I think about my grandkids all the time, you know. I think about people who you may not be able to get you, like I would love to get my grandkids more gifts to a degree. I don't want them to be spoiled, so I would be very careful. But I would want to get them more things. I don't have the money for that. Thank goodness my grandkids have never said to me, well, I mean, you'd be a better grandfather if I got more gifts from you. <laughs> right? They've never said that. Thank goodness. How, I mean, I, wouldn't be, I don't know if I'd be able to recover from that if they thought that way. Even though I know that would be wrong of them, that would be horrible. And what's actually more exciting is, and, and you know, we have this with our kids and with our grandkids when they're young especially, is they just want to be with you. That's really, I don't know about you, but I just, and maybe I'm just really super sentimental, but I think that's really super cool. Just, you know, when, I, when my kids were young, no matter where I went, it was a hassle. I know it was a hassle because I tried to do it now and it takes too much energy for my grandkids. But when I was younger and my kids were young, no matter where I went, if whatever kids want to come, one or sometimes all four, uh, they can come. I just wanted to be with me. I want to be with them, I want to be with me. If I'm just going to 7-Eleven, if I'm going to Kroger, or if I'm just going to go get gas, I want them to come. I just want to be together. That's kind of, that's the idea. And so, all the things that we think about, about that kind of a relationship, that's what, we, that's what God wants us to have with him. He wants to have that with us. And it, it's really outside the norm of how we may think about God, uh, but, that, but that kind of intimacy is, intimacy is what God desires with us um, and why he reconciles us to himself. We'll talk more about that when we get together next week and pick it up here and spend a little bit of time about this idea of knowing God that, that Paul is talking about and see if we can get maybe some greater clarity uh, and comprehension of that because it's really the, a key to what he wants them to be able to grasp. Before I pray, um, I don't know how many of these things are out there, but 
apparently there's like these Christmas trees we've used for decoration and some of the ladies need to be thrown in the attic. So I guess if you're young, so see, I'm 66. So if you're 65 and younger, um, <laughs> then you can help them carry some of the, I, I don't think they're big. I think, I don't know what they are. Um, I don't think, but see Emily Wise and she can tell you what they want to have put upstairs and just throw it up there and everybody be happy. Um, so uh, if you remember, good. Let's pray. Father, as always, we're grateful to you for your kindness and goodness. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to, to evaluate ourselves always to make sure that we're not overly consumed with outward righteousness and to recognize that, that we're not ever going to be good enough for, for you to accept us anyway. And that's not about that. That it really is about this relationship that we have where you know us and we know you. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you, would, you would help us to kind of kind of get through all of the the gift wrap kind of stuff at times and get down to the nitty-gritty of, of what it means to have an authentic, close, personal relationship with you. That we are to pursue righteousness, but we don't do so, Lord, because it's a show. We do so, Lord, because of, our, of the fact that we love you and we know that you love us. So, Father, we ask that you will continue to burn these things into our hearts and mind and cause us to meditate on them, to think about them as we read through the book of Philippians. We pray that you would dismiss us with your grace. Keep us safe until we gather again. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.